I woke up at 3.30 this morning, and you know what I was thinking about? Jeffrey Dahmer. Do you know him? He was one of the most notorious serial killers ever. He kidnapped, abused, and then murdered 17 young men. He was a pedophile, cannibalistic serial killer. You probably want to know why your pastor woke up at 3.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning thinking about Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Okay, I'm going to answer that so that when I die, you don't discover my internet search history and scratch your head and wonder, why was he searching for Jeffrey Dahmer at 3.30 in the morning on a Sunday? Here's the answer. Because of grace. Because Jeffrey Dahmer, while in prison, heard about the free grace of God offered to sinners in the gospel and he repented of his sins and placed his trust in Jesus. And do you know where Jeffrey Dahmer is right now? Standing in the white, hot, glorious presence of Jesus and he is enjoying every second of it. But, 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 how? Why? But, but why? Because of grace. And because of grace, Jeffrey Dahmer is your brother in Christ. Think about that. Brennan Manning said, My life is a witness to vulgar grace. A grace that amazes as it offends. A grace that pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5. A grace that hikes up the robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party. No ifs, ands, or buts. A grace that raises bloodshot eyes to a dying thief's request. Please remember me and assures him, you bet. A grace that is the pleasure of the Father, fleshed out in the carpenter Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who left his Father's side, not for heaven's sake, but for our sakes, yours and mine. This vulgar grace is indiscriminate passion. It works without asking anything of us. It's not cheap. It's free. And as such, will always be a banana peel for the orthodox foot and a fairy tale for the grown-up sensibility. Grace is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all our might to try to find something or someone it cannot cover. Grace is enough. He is enough. Jesus is enough. And that's what we'll see in our passage today. Grace. Offensive grace. Vulgar grace. Grace that is sufficient even though we huff and puff with all of our might to find something or someone that it cannot cover. And you just might huff and puff when you see who grace covers in our passage today. So we're back in 1 Kings, continuing our wholehearted series. So please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 20 right now. And if it bothers you that God pays the eager beaver who works all day long the same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5, then 
be prepared to be offended today. And if it bothers you that Jesus hikes up his robe and runs breakneck toward the prodigal reeking of sin and wraps him up and decides to throw a party, no ifs, ands, or buts, then be prepared to be offended today. Grace is offensive. And what we need to be reminded of as a church, as a church family, as we start the new year is this. Grace It isn't just our first name, it's our only hope. Grace isn't just our first name, it's our only hope. The gospel isn't just our favorite word around here, it is our only hope. And it's this hopeful, offensive grace that permeates our passage today. So 1 Kings chapter 20 Beginning in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to King Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children are also mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, Deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathers together his army and he rounds up 32 other kings and their armies and decides to lay siege to the city of Samaria, which just so happens to be the home of Ahab, who is the king of Israel. Typically, a siege would consist of one army gathering around the walls of a city, shutting and closing up its doors, allowing no one to come or go, wouldn't allow anyone to be able to go out into their fields and gather crops for food, and then they would just wait until the people starved to death or surrendered. So Ben-Hadad marches to and gathers around Samaria with 32 other kings and their armies, and he sends a text message To King Ahab, he says, your bank account and your family are mine. Ben-Hadad tells Ahab that he needs to hand over all of his stuff. Cars, TVs, jewelry, wives, or the best wives, as he says very specifically in verse 3. Because ain't nobody got time for bad wives, right? Give me the good ones. Wives, kids, all of it. And King Ahab says, okay, what? Ben-Hadad merely flexes his muscles and King Ahab cries uncle. I mean, come on, Ahab. Man up. Where is that Mel Gibson brave heart that your people want to see, Ahab? Well, obviously it's not in Samaria. So Ahab caves. But then Ben-Hadad says something says that he doesn't just want Ahab's stuff, he wants everybody's stuff, everybody in the city. He wants it all. And that's when Ahab finally says no. And Ahab calls the elders of the land, and he explains the situation to them. Look at verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, 
Mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. For he sent to me for my wives and my children and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, Do not listen or consent. So Ahab uh, said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king, All that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me, and more also, if the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls for all the people who follow me. And then the king of Israel answered, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. And when Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, Take your positions, and they took their positions against the city. So Ahab calls all the elders of the land, and they tell him, do not listen to this wise guy. So Ahab and Ben-Hadad then go back and forth for a bit, and the whole time that they're doing this, Ben-Hadad is drinking a beer with every back and forth. It's a drinking game to him. Every time someone comes with a new message from Ahab, then Ben-Hadad takes a drink. And by the time they finish this back and forth, Ben-Hadad has changed his name to Ben-Hammered. He's lit. He's three sheets to the wind. And in that moment, a totally wasted Ben-Hadad with slurred speech says, Take your positions, boys. We're going to war. Ben-Hadad is now a drunk Mel Gibson Braveheart. But notice that both King Ahab and Ben-Hadad are each acting like they're the one in charge. They're both acting as if they are calling the shots in human history. They go back and forth with a bunch of, he said, he said. They go back and forth with a bunch of, I know you are, but what am I? But they'll soon learn that Yahweh, the sovereign Lord, is the one who's calling all the shots. Look at verse 13. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And Ahab said, By whom? And the prophet said, Thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. And Ahab said, Who shall begin the battle? And the prophet answered, You. Then Ahab mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Now notice the word behold here in verse 13. The, the Hebrew word is the word hene. We saw this in our series in Isaiah a few weeks ago. This word is used all over the Old Testament. And when the authors use it, they are inviting us, the audience, to come into a scene and to observe something. To kind of become like the director behind a movie and to kind of visualize it with our hands. To become behind the camera. That's the Hebrew word here, behold, hene. It means come here, enter into the scene, get behind the camera, observe with your own eyes what I'm talking about. Get a load of this. Come check this out. And here, the author of 1 Kings wants us to see a prophet coming near to King Ahab. Remember, in the Old Testament, the prophet was the mouthpiece for the Lord. The prophet was the Lord's voice to his people. The prophet represented the word of God. So the author wants us to see the prophet 
God's word coming near to King Ahab. And he wants us to be shocked by this. And we should be. Why? Well, do you remember King Ahab? I know it's been a little over a month since we left off in 1 Kings, but do you remember who King Ahab is? He is a dirty, rotten scoundrel. That's who. Remember what we saw back in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19? How Ahab led the nation away in Baal worship? Listen to his bio again from 1 Kings 16. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab was even more evil than all the other kings before him, which we looked at, and they were all pretty evil, weren't they? Ahab came along after this string of rotten, depraved kings, and you know what he said? He said, hold my beer. Ahab was the king of wicked kings and the lord of evil lords. And as if it was bad enough that Ahab walked in the ways of Jeroboam and all the other bad kings, he also married a foreign woman, Jezebel, a non-Israelite, a Sidonian. And then he started going to church with her. Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of God's people, the one who was supposed to be the moral compass of the nation of Israel, leading them in the worship of Yahweh, he started going to church with his new wife Jezebel and began to worship her gods. And so what's the big deal about that? Well, the Sidonians where Jezebel came from, they worshipped Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of the moon and sensual love and fertility. And in the ancient Near East, Ashtoreth was dating the Canaanite god Baal. They were lovers. And so the little kids used to sing, Ash and Baal, sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Baal and Ashtoreth were lovers. Here's their prom picture. I mean, look at them. Aren't they a cute couple? Bless their hearts. Baal was the god of Thunder, lightning, rain, and fertility. And the Canaanites believed that whenever Baal and Ashtoreth were intimate, then the rains would come down and water their crops. But the Canaanites did not believe that you just wait on Baal to send rain. The Canaanites did not believe in uh, let, uh, let go and let Baal. They believed that people should encourage Baal and Ashtoreth to be intimate by being intimate themselves. So the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution. They would have prostitutes available at the shrines and you could worship Baal and Ashtoreth by engaging with a prostitute. This is what King Ahab, king of Israel, has been doing. 
He erected an altar for Baal and built Baal a house, a place to be worshipped. He built him a church, if you will. And he also made, the text says, an Asherah pole. These Asherah poles were shaped like male reproductive organs. And so hormones had replaced the heart in Israel's worship when King Ahab took the reins. But understand that Ahab didn't merely replace Yahweh with Baal. He just added all of these extra gods to Israel's worship. There were options now. They still worshipped Yahweh at the temple, but Ahab built new places and added new gods to be worshipped alongside Yahweh. They worshipped Yahweh alongside Ashtoreth and Baal. So King Ahab was worse than any king that came before him. He led the nation of Israel into gross idolatry, worship through prostitution. They worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth, doing these things while they worshipped the Lord. And here's how wicked Ahab's heart was. He witnessed Yahweh's victory over Baal on Mount Carmel, which we saw back in chapter 18, and he still didn't truly repent. And then he let his wife Jezebel put a bounty out on the prophet Elijah's head. I mean, this is Israelite's king. He let Jezebel put a hit out on the prophet Elijah, the mouthpiece of the Lord, the one who brings God's word to his people. And now, here in verse 13 of 1 Kings 20, we have a prophet appearing to Ahab. And the author of 1 Kings wants us to feel the tension. What's going to happen? He says, come here, y'all. Get a load of this. You're not going to believe it. A prophet is approaching Ahab. And so what do we expect knowing what we know about Ahab? We expect the prophet to use the force like Darth Vader, right? And do a force choke on Ahab. But he doesn't do that at all. Look at verse 13 again. And behold, a prophet came near to Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. What? The Lord is going to intervene and help Ahab defeat Ben Hammered? I mean, Ben Hadad? What? Really? Why? How? But... But, but, listen, grace is disturbing. It's meant to be. Does this offend you? Does this passage offend you? Does this upset you that Yahweh is going to help this dirty, rotten idolater? Is this a banana peel to your orthodox foot? Does it bother you that God pays the eager beaver who works all day long the exact same wages as the grinning drunk who shows up at 10 till 5? Well, welcome to Grace University. Your first class is Grace 101, and in this class, everybody gets an A. That's how grace works. No ifs. Ands or buts. As Robert Capon said, people always assume that the church's primary business is to teach morality, but it isn't. It's to proclaim grace, forgiveness, and the free party for all. It's to announce the reconciling relationship of God to everybody and to invite them simply to believe it and celebrate it. That's grace. It's an invitation 
to a party to people who have no business being there at all. It comes to people who clearly do not deserve a drop of it. And that's why in this church, our main business is not to teach morality. The Pharisees did that. That was their focus. And we all know how Jesus felt about those guys, don't we? We're here to proclaim grace. Pure, unadulterated grace. To proclaim forgiveness and to proclaim the free party for all. Knowing that that message is what transforms us. The message that we proclaim saves sinners. And the message that we proclaim transforms sinners. And so here at 6 05 East McCoy Lane. Grace, it isn't just our first name. It's our only hope. The only hope a tired mom has on Sunday morning after spending the week scrolling through Instagram and seeing post after post of all those perfect moms out there, the only hope she has is grace. The only hope a man enslaved to pornography has is grace. The only hope a bitter person has who's wilting away and dying on the inside is grace. The only hope tired parents have is grace. The only hope a teenager who feels unloved and feels like a total failure has is grace. The only hope any weary sinner who is tired of dancing with their darling sins has is grace. Grace. It's all we got and it's all we need. It's all we'll ever need. And God loves to freely give it to people. He just throws it around like confetti, like glitter, even to people like Ahab. And we're all probably more like Ahab than we dare admit. We may not do the same things that he does, but we've got the exact same kind of heart and desires. And that's okay. It doesn't change the nature of grace, does it? Grace even comes to people who have too high a view of themselves. You may have too high a view of yourself, and God says, I'll still shower that prideful person with grace. So the prophet tells Ahab that Yahweh is going to hand Ben-Hadad into his hand so that he will know that Yahweh is Lord. Look at verse 16. And they went out at noon while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booths, he and the 32 kings who helped him. The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, men are coming out from Samaria. He said, if they come out for peace, take them alive, or if they come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. So Ahab and 
7,232 men go out to pick a fight with Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings and their armies. It's 7,232 men versus 32 armies. Yahweh loves those odds. And according to verse 16, and according to Ahab's iPhone watch, it's noon. But according to Ben-Hadad's iPhone watch, it's Miller time. Ben Haydad just wants to do some day drinking, y'all. Ben Haydad is getting hammered on his lunch break. He's drunk again. He's three sheets to the wind for a second time. And he sends scouts out who return and tell him that men are now coming out of the city of Samaria. And what does Ben Haydad say? You can tell the alcohol is speaking here. He said in verse 19, If they had come out for peace, take them alive Or if they have come out for war, take them alive. You have to read that with slurred speech. I mean, what kind of crazy talk is this? Then Ahab attacks Ben-Hadad and company and basically whips their tails. But then Ben-Hadad, drunk as a skunk, somehow escapes on his horse. And who gets the victory? King Ahab, resident scoundrel of Israel. King Ahab, Baal worshiper extraordinaire. The guy who doesn't deserve the W gets the W. Ahab gets the W. And you can file that under G for grace. Ahab didn't deserve the victory over Ben-Hadad. And he certainly didn't deserve the tip-off in advance that Ben-Hadad would be back to pick a fight in the spring. Ahab didn't deserve the prophet coming to him for a second time and telling him to keep his cardio up because Ben-Hadad will be back in the spring to pick a fight with him. Ahab didn't deserve any of this. What does God give to people who squander his grace? More grace. When we resist and stiff arm God's grace, you know what Jesus does? He says, fine. I'll just give you more grace. When we resist, he gives more. Wow. Ahab didn't deserve any of this. But that's how grace rolls, right? It's amazing. Do we really believe that when we sing it? Do you really believe that after encountering 1 Kings 20? Can you really say amazing grace or are you offended by it? Grace is amazing. Or maybe we should say it's offensive. Offense of grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's offensive. Because that's how we all feel when someone gets grace, right? When someone doesn't get what they deserve. And when they get what they don't deserve, especially someone like Ahab, grace is offensive undeserving people get it and that bothers us right in Matthew 20 Jesus tells a parable of the workers read it sometime and be offended you might not like Jesus's policy when you read Matthew 20 doesn't it bother you that Yahweh shows grace to King Ahab it should and then it should cause you to remember that you're just like King Ahab. You're just as dirty and rotten. And yet God in Christ gives you grace all the time. 
Grace, like rain, falls down on you and me all the time, and we don't deserve it. So if it bothers you that Yahweh extends grace to Ahab, just go look in the mirror and then repent and then enjoy the grace that God so freely gives you in Christ. He gives it liberally and excessively. He's loaded. And he's never going to run out. I mean, look at me. I am living proof that grace will never, ever run out. I am living proof that grace will never, ever run dry. So if you're worried about maybe grace will run out someday, look at me and be like, oh yeah, God's grace is never going to run out. Because that guy's still here. And grace doesn't work like karma either. In fact, grace is karma's worst nightmare. Grace doesn't work like karma at all. Grace doesn't do an eye for an eye. Grace comes to you when you are at your lowest, when you've got bedhead, when you've got morning breath, when you've got crust in your eyes and slobber running down your chin, and grace loves you in that moment. Grace wants to kiss you in that moment. As Bono sings in the U2 song, Grace, which is appropriately titled that way. He says, grace finds beauty in ugly things. Grace makes ugly things beautiful. Grace loves to love the unlovable. Grace doesn't just sit on the mountaintop and tell sinners to climb up and get it because grace can't be earned. It can't be bought. Grace doesn't just beckon sinners. Grace moves down to broken sinners who are paralyzed and cannot move. Grace seeks the down and out and welcomes them and lifts them up. Grace descends to save the down and out. Get this, y'all. You will run out of sin before God runs out of grace. That's how much grace God has for sinners. You will run out of sin before God ever runs out of grace. Why? Because grace is not just some abstract theological concept. Grace is a person. Grace is Jesus, God's eternal son, the word made flesh. And this is what we see all through the Word, the Word of God. The main artery of the Bible is grace. Page after page after page, we see good things happening to bad people. Why can't we see it? It's our high view of ourselves that keeps us from being astonished by grace. So the word grace is really just shorthand for the personal loving kindness of God located in the person of Jesus. Grace is Jesus living and dying for people like us. Grace, it isn't just our first name, it's our only hope. Our only hope is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for scoundrels like us. And as you get older as a Christian and you begin to grow, the longer you're a Christian, you begin to realize that if God's grace isn't everything, then you really don't have a chance, do you? No chance. A snowball's chance in hell if it's riding on you and me. If grace isn't everything, then we don't have a chance. Game over. 
But the good news of the gospel is that grace is free for the undeserving. And so, how can we buy what's not for sale? We can't. It's not for sale, it's free. Listen, if grace cost us one thing, if grace cost us anything, if it could be bought with our commitment, if God's favor and grace could be secured by our promises, if it could be earned by our obedience, if it could be bought by our 2020 Bible reading plan, if it could be bought by us at all, then you know what? It would remain in the store, on the shelf, can't move this product, too much inventory. If grace could be bought by us, it would remain in the store, on the shelf, collecting dust. But grace is free. You just open the empty hands of faith and it's yours. One of the main avenues of sanctification is getting away from justification by works, getting away from thinking that we can be justified by what we do, and then freely accepting His grace. It's coming to grips with the fact that you did nothing and you get everything. Every time you do that sin that you told God you would never do again, He does what He said He will do. He gives more grace. Jesus is loaded with grace. He's a big tipper too. So let me ask you, where today are you running from Jesus in guilt? What is it that you have done that makes you run from him? That's where he will meet you today. He will run to you in grace in the place where you run from him. So there's grace for you today. Grace to forgive you today. Grace to restore you today. God has made it very easy for you to come back and start over with him. Just say, okay God, let's do it. There's grace for whatever you're going through. Whatever situation you find yourself in, there's grace for that. Whatever situation you find yourself in today, there's grace for that. And there's grace right here at this table in the body and blood of our Lord. And it's free. No charge. Come and get it, y'all. It's like Jesus is standing on the porch and he rings a dinner bell. Ding, 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 ding. Grace is ready, y'all. Come and get it. Is that too southern of an image for you? I do that in the South with a little more accent. Ding, ding, ding. Grace is ready. Dinner's ready, y'all. Grace, it isn't just our first name. It's our only hope. As we prepare our hearts to feast on Christ by faith and celebrate his grace with the Lord's Supper, let me close with the word by Bono, lead singer of U2. He said, grace is my favorite word in the lexicon of the English language. It's a word I'm depending on. The universe operates by karma. We all know that. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. There is some atonement built in, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Then enters grace and turns that upside down. I love it. I'm not talking about people being graceful in their actions, but just covering over the cracks. Christ's ministry really was a lot to do with pointing out how everybody is a screw-up in some shape or form, and there's no way around it. But then he was to say, Well, I'm going to deal with those sins for you. I will take on myself all the consequences of sin. Even if you're not religious, I think you'd accept that there are consequences to all the mistakes we make. And so grace enters the picture to say, I'll take the blame. I'll carry the cross. It is a powerful idea. Grace interrupting karma.
grace. Ahab didn't deserve it, and we don't either. But God gives it. Grace is karma's worst nightmare. Grace interrupts karma and says, "Uh uh-uh, let me handle this. Grace, it's a powerful idea, a powerful person, Jesus. And you can find him today right here at this table. He welcomes you with all your sin. He has a spot reserved just for you at his table. Come, come and get it, y'all. Jesus is standing on the porch ringing the dinner bell. Ding, ding, ding. Supper's ready, y'all. The Lord's Supper's ready, y'all. Come and get it. Come and get it. Will you come? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for grace. We would never, ever come up with that idea. We want justice. Unless we're the one in trouble, and then we want grace. But you give it freely to anyone who will humble themselves. And so as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we humble ourselves and we get low before you and we just open up the empty hands of faith and we acknowledge that we are sinners and we're so grateful that you'll meet us here. Help us to feast on you by faith now and be refreshed and renewed to live for you, to to put sin to death and to honor you with our lives. So we come empty-handed and saying, the only thing we can bring to the dinner table is our sin and we long to be fed by your grace. Would you feed us now, we ask in your name. Amen.